Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Mem Dalad, page 44. The Gemara, as in yesterday's Gemara, continues to have a discussion around where do some of these traditions or mitzvot come from? And they sort of uh, are not sure how, what the origin story is for some of the things that were done on Sukkot. And so I'm going to begin in the middle of Amud Aleph and read all the way through the end of this Amud, where they begin a discussion since they were talking about uh, the Arava and the Lulav and specifically what the basis is for the Lulav. But now they have an interesting discussion about the Arava in the Beit HaMikdash. Amarish Lakish, Kohanim Bali Mumin, Nichnasin Ben Ha'ulam, Vilamizbeach, Kedei Leitzet Ba'arava. So priests who have a moon, we know that if priests had certain physical characteristics that was called a moon, and I guess traditionally it would be translated as some sort of defect, um, and therefore they were not allowed to do the avoda, the Kohanim could do in these types of moons. They were allowed to enter between the entrance hall of the Beit HaMikdash, the Ulam, and again, you can look at any sort of chart of the Beit HaMikdash to see exactly where that is and the altar so that they could fulfill, right? right? It's like the, the, the language here of Yitzia, fulfilling a mitzvah, the mitzvah of our rabbi. So even though, and the chiddush here is, is that even though they have these mumim, these blemishes that doesn't allow them traditionally to go there, they can circle the altar with the arava, right? They will actually, you know, they will pass this area between the entrance hall and the altar but they were allowed to do so because they were going to fulfill this mitzvah of the Arabah. Amar le Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Yochanan says to Reish Lakish, and I know we haven't fully gone through who they are, but remember these are first generation Amoraim and they're Chavrutas, Bar Paluktas with each other, right? They always uh, learn together. Mi Amra, right? So he says, who said this? And so then the Gemara sort of says, Mi Amra, Ha Ihu Amar de Rabbi And they said, who said it? Didn't Rabbi Yochanan himself say it? Because the Amar Rabbi Yassi, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum Rabbi Nuchunya. Because didn't Rabbi Yassi say in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, in the name of Rabbi Nuchunya, Ish Bakat Beit Chortan Eser Nitiot Arava Veniso Chamayim Alechalim B'Shemitzin. I'm sorry, I didn't read this correctly. It's uh, Rabbi Nuchunya Ish Bakat Beit Chortan. That's his full name. But the halacha is as following. The Eser Nitiot, the halacha of the ten saplings, okay? Arava, the halacha of having a willow branch, um, and Niso Chamayim, and the halacha of the water libation on the altar, right? That took place, all these things took place, that took place on Sukkot. This is all halacha Lamosha Misinai. So I'll just digress here for one second. There's this halacha here about the ten saplings. I won't get into, uh, everything about it because it's in Masachat Shvit, which we mentioned before is the Masachat on Shemitah and there actually is in Gemara Bavli about it but it's specifically a Mishnah in Parak Aleph uh, Mishnah Vav that teaches that if you have 10 saplings that are planted in an area of a Beit Seah which is about 2500 square Amot then that entire area can be plowed until Rosh Hashanah of the Shemitah year um, there isn't a, an issue of uh Tosefet Shvid. And what's explained is that these are like immature plants and they're weak and they're going to dry out 
if the earth around it is not plowed. So therefore, you were allowed to 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 plow around it, uh, you know, even uh, around uh, Shemitah. But that's a whole You're separate not, discussion there. But I just want to interject, you know, for a moment again of realia. Um, there's been a lot of discussion. You know, there's this very bad fire in outside of Jerusalem in the past week. And there's been a lot of discussion of what amounts to exactly this rule of the Esrenetiot. Not exactly, right? But because Shemitah is about to come, can they replant the trees? When are they supposed to replant the trees? Can they water around? Right? There's a lot of discussion of what can they do in these couple of weeks. And the answer is not very much. And the next answer is that might not be a problem. Part of what happens after a fire is you wait a while before you do anything. But it's been an interesting, you know, if you want a nice nister, this is one of them, I think. Oh, yeah. great example. Right. So the, the idea is that you want to keep those trees and the grounds around it. OK, so you, there's an exception with it with Shemitah. So but the point here is, is that these are three halachot that Rabbi Yochanan himself said is halacha lemosha misinai. And so the question is asking Rish Lakish, who said it? Ella mi amra binitila. So rather, his question is, who said that there's a mitzvah, right, in taking the arava and going around the altar? Who said that that itself was a mitzvah? Dilma bizikifa, Dilma bizikifa, right? Maybe the mitzvah is, and we talked about this before, that it's just like sort of putting the branch up, the arava upright. So in other words, what he believes is halacha l'moshe misina is, there's something that you have to do with the arava. But what he was asking is, who's, he's asking Rich Lakish, how do you know it's that you have to circle the altar? Maybe you just have to put it upright. And who also said that this mitzvah has to be done by Kohanim who have this mum? Maybe it can only be done by a priests who don't have the, these moves. So that's really what Rabbi Yochanan's question is. Um, and then it goes on to say the following. So it said that there was a dispute or machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Now this is also interesting because these are not, well, one's a Tana, one's a Rabbi Yoshua you know, ben Levi is like a third generation Tana. Rabbi Yochanan is a transitional Amora, right? First generation Amora. These are not people of the first gender of the same generation. So it's interesting to see the Gemara say they have a machlokas together, like it's a you know a transgenerational machlokas. And I think this language is very interesting. One of them said that the Araba, it's basically a mitzvah, it's a it's a yesod, uh, it's an ordinance, it's a takana of the of the prophets. Right. And that basically what most of the commentaries explained that it was something that Chagai Zachariah Malachi instituted in the Beit HaMikdash as being uh, a, a mitzvah that you had to do. And one says, right, that it's a minhag, right, that in other words, it was something it was a custom that was practiced by the Nevi'im, but and it was adopted, but it wasn't something that you that you had, uh, you know, that you had to do. And then, so then it says, So we could conclude that it must have been Rabbi Yochanan who said that it was a, um, a, a Yisod Nevi'im, that it was actually an actual mitzvah. So they now quote a statement by Rabbi Yavahu, quoting Rabbi Yochanan, that the Arava is a Yisod Nevi'im. And so they say, fine, so conclude from there. 
Amar le Rabbi Zera le Rabbi Avag. So Rabbi Zera then comes to Rabbi Avagu and says the following: Mi Amar Rabbi Yochanan, right? Achi, who said that Rabbi Yochanan actually said this that it's a yisod, right? Ba'amar Rabbi Yochanan mishun Rabbi Nechunya ish bakad bechortan, right? Didn't Rabbi Yochanan say in the name of Rabbi Nechunya this ish bakad bechortan? Esther Nitiot, a rabba benisochamayim halacha lemoshe misinai. Didn't he say that these three things, these, you know, the Esser Natiyot, the Arav, and the Nisochamayim are Lachalamosha Misinai, right? And so how can he say, therefore, that it was actually a mitzvah from the prophets? He says it's a Lachalamosha Misinai, meaning it goes back much earlier. And so then they quote a Pasuk from Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 16, um, where it says, what? Um, uh, where it says, Estamos Keshachada, right? He was astonished for a while, right? And then, Va'amar Shechum Vechazru Vistum. And after he like thought about this, he said, Yes, it must be that Rabbi Yochanan really believes that it's Halachal Moshe Sinai, right? But what happened? They forgot, right? In other words, during the Galut, the, the Galut of Babel, they forgot what happened. And then, therefore, what happened? And then the prophets came back and they reinstituted it. So, in other words, the way that they sort of like figure out this machlokas is, yes, Rabbi Yochanan believes it's a halachal emotion Sinai, but it was forgotten because of the galut babel, right? And then what happens is, is that then the prophets come and they sort of reinstitute it. Umiyamar Rabbi Yochanan hachi. So then the Gemara goes back and says, Rabbi Yochanan actually say, this that it was alachal emotion Sinai, but I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. Dilachun imri dilachun ki lokasha, right? So didn't Rabbi Yochanan say yours? Meaning he's talking about the Babylonian sages, right? The Chachamim say that this is dilachun he, that this is theirs. So in other words, didn't he say about the same thing that it's not alachal emotion Sinai or something that was instituted by prophets? Rather, he says. It was like a halacha of the Babylonian uh, Babylonian rabbis. And so the Gemara says, lo kasha, kamimikdash, kamikvulin. So he says, no. Here, Rabbi Yochanan says, halacha was halacha l'moshim Sinai. He's talking about doing the arava in the temple. There, when he says it was established by the prophets, he was talking about when it was saying to do it in the gvulin, in the outlining area. So again, I just want to pay attention to this passage because I think what we're consistently seeing on, uh, on, on a few dampim here is that many of these customs or mitzvot, there's a discussion around, is it a custom or is it a mitzvah? And where does it come from? Is it a lechel Sinai? Is it a yisod neviyam? Is it a minag neviyam? We're seeing a bunch of these terms sort of thrown around. Again, because I think of our time limitation with dafyomi, I'm not feeling like I'm getting a, a total handle on really exploring what do all these different terms see? But I think this is, you know, as Anne, you always call it, it's a sussing out passage. They're really trying to figure it out. And we're also seeing that we see multiple uh, statements attributed to one Amora. And the simplest solution is to say, oh, no, one is talking about the Beit HaMikdash and one is talking about the Gavulin. And so thinking about this, which is another theme that we've seen, right, that we can have a multitude of statements, either Tanitic, now we have Amoraic that could be talking about, that sort of arrives maybe at two different conclusions or is describing two different scenarios. One is 
temple halacha versus gavulin halacha, um, that I think some of this is also part of how did halacha evolve in a post-Beit HaMikdash world. And so we want to see that, yes, they want to codify what was the halacha when the temple stood, but they also want to codify what's the halacha when we don't have a temple as well. So it's just interesting, again, to see sort of these same issues come up daf after daf. I think also this is another example of where we don't have a systematic presentation. You know, let us discourse on these levels of halacha versus minak type of thing. And yet it's really here in, I would say, in a rather robust way, because now on Amud Bet, I've got some text that's going to address this as well, but in a very different kind of way, because now we're going to have, I would call it, let's call it testimonial about, right, halacha versus minhag type of thing. Um, Amar Evu. So the Gemara talks about Evu, who is the father of Rav, who we all know. He says, I was standing before Rabbi Elazar Bar Tzadok, Somebody or other, right? Some guy brought an arava, the willow branch, before him, right, to do this mitzvah of the arava. Shakil, he takes it. Chavet, chavet, velobarech, He he waves it around, right? He does he does the thing that you do with the arava, but he doesn't make a bracha. Kasavar, meaning the implication is that he his position his halachic position, I guess, his rationale. Minhag it's a practice, a custom of from the prophets, meaning as compared to halacha, as compared to a halacha from the Torah, a mitzvah from the Torah that would require a bracha. And here we have another story about other people, right? It's Abel and Chizkyu, who were the sons of the daughter of Rav. So this is no longer. Evu, the father of Rav, it's his grandson, right? Name, presumably named after his father. Um, and they also, they do the same thing. They bring the Aravad, they come before Rav. And also, he waves it. Now, Rav waves it. It does make a bracha, right? Which is, you know, kind of like a, go look out that window and see what the people are doing. What the people are doing, at least these people, is not making a bracha even though we've had discussion over, you know, isn't this Minhat Torah? And shouldn't they, the implication being, of course, that they therefore should be making a bracha. And then once we're talking about that, once we've got an example of halacha that is presented, or halacha meaning the practice, right? What they did was presented via looking at what they did and inferring it. So then the Gemara says, Amar Evo. Meaning, this happened another time, right? They were there, and what happens? As they're by, they're, they're standing with um, uh, Some guy, again, is not someone specific. Or rather, it is someone specific. It doesn't tell us who, which specific person it is. So what happens? Someone comes and says, I have villages. I have olive groves. I have olives. And then what happens? The villagers come and they hoe the olive groves. Now again, this was again during Shemitah. 
And the question is, you know, is it okay that they're coming to eat from the olive trees during the Shemitah year? Right? This is fundamentally um, natural pruning, I would su- suppose, right? It's going to have an impact on the growth of the olive trees. On the other hand, you know, it's not quite the same thing as harvesting for commerce or, or something that we know is an egregious uh, offense against Shvit. But the question is, you know, is this okay? Is it is it appropriate? Is it not appropriate? Can he can he let them do this? So Rabbi Rabbi Tzadok says, no, it's not appropriate. So now the guy leaves. Um, um, I'm sorry, he's on his way out. And then Rabbi Tzadok says, Amar this is a really strong statement. He says, I've lived here for 40 years and I have never seen a person walk as straight a path as this guy does. Meaning the degree to which he is being careful in the practice of Shavit that even people who are not him, right? Meaning he wants to make sure that what they are doing in their passing in eating uh, eating from his trees is not a violation of Shvi'it. It's a very, very conscientious handling of this particular halacha of Shvi'it. So what happens? He comes back to Elizabeth Sadok and he says to him, so what should I do? What, what is to be done here? He says, Sir Elizabeth Sadok says, make your olives hefker for the poor. We've talked about this before, right? This idea that you can, if you make your food, if you make your produce that was going to be an issue of shvi'it, if you declare it ownerless, if you make it hefker, then the poor can take it, the poor can have it without any violation. And then he says, so you declare your, your olives ownerless, then you take the prutot to hire, and then you can hire workers. You know, you take your those that money, and you can hire workers as payment to then go hoe the olive groves. So it's a workaround to make sure that this guy who wants to be so righteous and make sure that he's handling shvi'it is still going to accommodate these people who are eating from his olives um, for during the shemitah year. Um, it is. Again, an example, I would say, of, you know, we're learning halacha. Rabbi Elizabeth Rabbi Sadok is paskening the same way that any shayla tshuva, right? Any kind of uh, rabbinic response could happen. But the way we find out about it is this kind of, they somebody over they overheard it, right? And, and it, it makes its way into the Gemara, as opposed to it being a rabbinic discussion of what would be the case you know, what would be the halacha in the case of somebody who had olive groves? It, it's presented as a, oh, look, we overheard the psak of Rebbe Tzadok. So then the Gemara goes on to discuss exactly this question in a halachic way, as if it were, you know, um, the agenda of the yeshiva that day to figure this out, right? Is it permissible, is it permissible to, in fact, do this hoeing of the olive groves during the sabbatical year? And that's, you know, isn't this a problem for Shemitah? And the answer is, and this is where, again, we've got here, now it is the more theoretical discussion, I think. Rav Ukva Bar Chama, Havu, Chad File, Chad Avrue Ilane. So we're in Aramaic, right? This is the 
it's the next, I don't know when, it's another generation or two later, right? Rav Ukva Brachama says, you have two kinds of hoeing when it comes to hoeing your olive groves. One, what you're doing is sealing the cracks in the ground. I mean, you're trying, your whole purpose there is to enhance the tree's health. And the other, oh, I'm sorry. And that's what's, that's what's prohibited. Evrue ilane asu. Stume file share. But if you're just trying to seal the cracks, I, I haven't said this right. Let me say it again. Um, there's two kinds of hoeing. One is for the sake of protecting the ground, which is about future growth. It's not about the current trees and improving the, their health right now. And the other kind of hoeing is for the benefit of those trees right now. Of course, that is prohibited during Shvit. But if you're simply protecting the ground, you know, to make sure that the trees are not going to die, you're not trying to get them to grow. You're trying to protect them against the future. That would be acceptable. And so then that seems to be part of the rationale of how could it have been that Rabbi Elizabeth would come up with this workaround for this guy. And then we have one more case of that's also this kind of overheard halacha. Amar evu mishum Rabbi Elizabeth This should be familiar to people from Masachet Erevin, right? He says a person should not walk on Shabbat, I'm sorry, on Arab Shabbat, more than three parsaot, right? Because otherwise you're at risk of not getting to where you need to get to on Shabbat, uh, you know, before Shabbat. Amrav Kahana, lo amran elilevete, avalushpuze, amei dinakit samich. So then the rationale here is um, that, uh, okay, he should, he, the idea is that he has, you have to get to where you're going before Shabbat to set yourself up. But then Rav Kahana says, no, that's only the case when you're going back to your own home. You want to make sure that you can get there in time to set, your, set yourself up for Shabbat. But if you're going to some some hotel, right, you're going to be a traveler who's relying on, either you're relying on the food you already have with you, I would add to that, or you could rely on what the what the hotel is going to provide, but you don't have to go out and make your, you don't, you're not making, you're not really making Shabbos that week, right? You're making sure that you, what you have is going to be sufficient or someone else is going to provide. Um, and because he knows that he's got food sufficient for his needs, he doesn't. He, he has a little bit extra time. He can go a little bit further in his traveling. I just want to note that this is not the same overheard halacha. I said that it was, and I apologize for that. It's, it is the same people. It's Avu in the name of Rebbe Elizabeth Sadok. But there's no overhearing. <clears throat> Nobody is coming to ask a question of Rebbe Elizabeth in this case. It's simply a, a psak that is said in his name and then modified by Rav Kahana. And then, of course, the Gemara goes on to have one more halacha in the name of Rav Kahana, because this is um, as associative uh, a text today as I think we've seen. Right then, so Rav Kahana comes into this further discussion of traveling on Arab Shabbat. And he says he has a story about himself, which I think is also kind of a an interesting cap to this, you know, halachot that we hear as by the cases as they come up. Amr of Kahana, b'didi hava uvada, va'afilu kasa lo eshkach. He says he had traveled to reach his own home. It was Arab Shabbat. He got home. He said he didn't even have uh, the a, a small fried fish to eat at home, meaning, uh-oh, he had nothing to do for Shabbat. He's making the point that you have to be ready to go before Shabbos comes in. And 
so this is exactly the concern. Make sure that you leave enough time before you get home. Of course, it's a practical concern nowadays as well, right? Anybody who's traveling and, and arriving home on Friday, whether you've gone on a on a hike that Friday morning or you're landing, you know, on a flight from wherever, you have to make sure that you have enough time to set yourself up for Shabbat, which I said, you know, I did this a few weeks ago. I came home. It was like coming into coming home from a few days away. And I, a friend said to me, texted me and said, oh, are you home yet? I'm like, well, we're getting into Jerusalem. She said, I hope you have food in the freezer. I'm like, of course, because I had to make sure that we were prepared before we left on Friday. I, I, I love that little part of the Gemara because it's like a real <laughs> a way we have to keep Shabbos till today. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us your stories of getting home in time for uh, Shabbos on a Friday. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.